This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 1979, and in space, no one can hear your podcast. The movie, Alien. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the best movies of all time. And when we do, we're going to send them to outer space, which is very interesting because this is our space series, our third in our mini-series of space films. Uh, there was a lot of talk last week about our last film, Amy, uh, Contact. We did not decide whether or not we were going to send it into space. And I wanted to just hit you with that right now. What do you think? Would you send it into space? Quick gut reaction. Oh, probably not. Probably not for me either, even though yeah. I loved it. And I'm going to say, uh, spoiler alert, there may be a film that I want to send to space coming up, and that one knocked contact off my list. So how about that? Hmm. I am with that. You know what just made my call, and I hate that I'm saying this out loud. Yeah, is really thinking about how like Contact and Silence of the Lambs are so similar. I was like, I, I can't. Ooh. That was that was it for me. As right. much as I like the religious aspect of Contact, made me want, made, makes me want to keep it on. It's interesting that you bring that up. I want you to hold that thought for a little bit as we get into Alien. But before we even get into Alien, I want to bring up one more thing. Um, Ned Beatty passed away. Uh, fantastic actor. And I was actually talking about one of his roles that I just truly, truly love, um, which is his role in the movie White Lightning, which is, um, I guess, the prequel to Gator, uh, a Burt Reynolds movie, or yeah, I think it's the prequel to Gator because Gator is a lot more of an action film and White Lightning is more of the uh, the gritty drama action car film so I recommend that. And Amy, if you've not seen White Lightning, it is I haven't. one of the sweatiest movies of all time. And not sweaty like uh, it's desperate, like sweaty like you feel the sweat on uh, on these actors. It's amazing. And truly, one of the actors who's popped up so many times on this show, uh, an amazing performance in Network. Uh, I love him as Superman as well. Uh, he's just 
He's great. All the President's Men, Silver Streak, and another good one that I'm just going to recommend. Just give him a little bit of his due and maybe uh, films that you don't know. Uh, Mikey and Nikki, which is a great, uh, a great, great film uh, directed by Elaine May, which I love. Yeah. Uh, Really, really fun movie. So those are two of you. Yeah. Can I ask a really dumb question that I know I'm going to get made fun of for asking? Is he related to Warren Beatty? Amy, it's actually a very good question that has been asked many times, but no, they are not related. Actually, they were born both in 1937. Um, Whoa. Yeah, and so uh, when asked this, because he was asked this a lot, uh, Ned Beatty would joke that Warren was his illegitimate uncle. Oh, a little bit of like an ageism. Like, you're, you are older <laughs> than me, man. I'm the, I'm the young, hot Beatty. It's me, it's Ned. <laughs> All right, well, Amy, uh, I'm excited to continue our space series with... Um, I mean, a true classic, a true classic. I know that you're much more into the prequels, but uh, I hope that you can enjoy uh, the originals here. Uh, So uh, let's unspool it. The year is 1979. Pink Floyd releases The Wall and Michael Jackson releases Off the Wall. NASA's first space station Skylab crashes back to Earth. After 2,249 days in orbit, China institutes a one-child-per-family rule. Notable firsts include the Sony Walkman, the Snowboard, and ESPN. And the hot movies of the year are The Deer Hunter, Kramer vs. Kramer, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and today's film, Alien. Amy, who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? Give me the facts. Alien. It is directed by Ridley Scott with a script by Dan O'Bannon and even more famously, a look by H.R. Giger, who does all of the biomechanical slithery, blah, 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 blah. Um, it is the story of the spaceship Nostromo, who uh, Ridley Scott described to himself as truckers in space. They are a blue collar working class ship that is headed home to Earth. The crew is safely asleep in their pods. When they get woken up by their computer, the computer is called Mother to investigate a signal from a nearby planet. That planet has eggs. The eggs have face huggers. The face huggers become a giant alien who rampages the ship and kills every single person but Ripley, who is played by Sigourney Weaver, and more importantly to me, a cat named Jones, who is kind of a dick, but he's a very, a very cute cat. Um, The corpses to be are played by Tom Skerritt, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stanton, John Hurt of the infamous chestburster scene, and Ian Holm, who is the person who got them into this mess because he's secretly an evil robot. Take a listen. Final report of the commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew, Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off. Alien hit theaters on May 25th, 1979. And if you are looking for the stars to align with the number one song that week, you are absolutely not going to find them because the top track on the charts is Peaches and Herb Reunited. But I kind of want to play a little bit anyways, and I want you just to imagine, if you will, John Hurt dancing with a face hugger.
somebody make that. I want that to be a TikTok <laughs> or something. That is amazing. Uh, Amy, oh, I wanted to heart's ask... so good. Heart's so good. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what version did you watch? Did you watch the director's cut or the theatrical version? I went with theatrical um, okay. instead of director's cut. Really, Scott has gone back and forth, and often he's like, I like the theatrical one best. I just did the director's cut for money. Like, all uh, right, sure. I actually watched the director's cut, and if you want to know the difference between the two, it's it's not much. Um, in the end, the director's cut runs about a minute shorter than the theatrical version, and really many of the changes seem to reflect the desire to give modern audiences a, an updated cut with quicker pacing. Uh, so a lot of the longer tracking shots are cut out, but they do add two uh, new scenes, um, and they're kind of interesting. In the first, Ripley explicitly makes the call to keep Kane locked out of the ship after he is attacked by the facehugger. And that kind of sets her up as a strong-willed, sensible protagonist, um, which is something that really isn't uh, in the theatrical version until later in the movie, once Dallas gets killed. Uh, and it's kind of revealed that she's going to be the actual hero. And speaking of Dallas, this second crucial new scene shows Ripley discovering the uh, xenomorph nest in the ship where it appears that Dallas and Brett have been transformed into eggs. And as far as lore is concerned, that is not a part of the life cycle of the xenomorphs, especially after seeing Cameron's aliens. Uh, since it's an originally deleted non-canon scene, it's just more of a curiosity than anything else. And that scene uh, actually has been reused because uh, Dallas begs her to kill him. And that was kind of used in a, in a later alien film. Um, yeah, so- I actually pulled that scene to listen to because like, when you watch just the theatrical cut, you're like, Okay, wait, but what's happening? Because sometimes the alien just, like, grabs people and takes them away. Like, he takes away Harry Dean Stanton. He takes away um, Tom Skerritt. And, like, well, what is he doing with them? And this scene tries to answer it. But it's really just, like, all about watching Tom Skerritt beg for his life in front of Ripley, who then gives him what he wants, which is a blow torching him to death. It's pretty <laughs> sad. Here it is. Oh, I- I love that scene. It actually is a really, the way it was put into the director's cut, it's a nice moment because the movie really is ratcheting up the pace at that point. The the ship is in self-destruct mode and it just gives you a little bit of, a little bit of an emotional grounding there. Now, should I come in with my hot take right off the bat or should I wait a little bit and talk about alien and its legacy and its lore? What, what do you think? I'm going to let you decide where I should go. Oh gosh. How hot is this take? That's is it hot. like, is it like blasting an alien in, in the, um, engine fire hot? Is it, it like, is it, I'm Tom Skerritt getting blowtorch to death hot? Or is you know, it like, it's pretty how hot. We're heating up the coffee. It's, it's pretty hot. I think it's pretty hot. I think it's actually very hot, and I'm surprised that I'm a, I'm surprised that that I didn't realize this. And I can talk about this movie in a way that I I truly do love this film. But I saw something very much like you. I saw something, and I can't get away from it. And I need to kind of put that out on the table. I think before we even talk about it, because it does relate back to this show. You earlier just said that you couldn't put Contact on the list because. It was so similar to Silence of the Lambs. And when I'm watching this movie, I'm going, God damn it. This movie is The Thing. Yep. And The Thing is better. 
Wow, you're calling that out right away. I am. I am. <laughs> and now look, this movie came out before The Thing. The Thing came out in 82, Alien 79. But I am like, for pound for pound, The Thing is a better movie. And I think the real reason why I feel this way is because the lack of character in Alien. I have not really thought about this in a critical way, but we just recently watched The Thing, and it was fresher in my mind, and I'm watching this movie, and I love Ripley, and I'm like, why do I love Ripley so much, or what What are these characters? You don't really know or care about these characters. They are just bodies, and... And the thing does such a great job at setting up, and you don't have to have like full backstories, but you get enough of them that you're intrigued. Here, and we just talk about it, like Ripley, Dallas, they are all kind of interchangeable, um, ultimately. Now, Ripley is a badass, and I love Tom Skerritt, but this is really weighing on the actor's shoulders, like Yafakoto as Parker. I don't know a goddamn thing about him, but I like Yafakoto, and I think he's very good in this movie. Great. You know, um, I'd argue that Ian Holm is probably the most developed out of all the characters. I truly mean that. And I think that Sigourney Weaver gets so much more developed as the the films go on. And I, I especially think that Alien 2, uh, or Aliens, rectifies a lot of my issues with the lack of character development. I think it actually makes you, like, I think about Bill Paxson, and I think about all those other characters surrounding her. Uh, here... They're very interchangeable. So that's what I couldn't get out of my mind. So that's my hot take. Okay, wait. I will go with you halfway. Okay. I will not go with you all the way. Okay. Um, I agree wholeheartedly that a lot of the Ripley people see when they watch this movie is almost like layered on from Aliens. Right. You know, like Ripley the baddest. Because her badassness, I think, I mean, I hate, I hate calling women badass anyways, even though I do. But like her strength is here. But yes. it's a, it grows and it's a little bit different. But we also add so much to her because of what we know about her later. That um, that said, all right, I do think there are interesting characters in here, but it took me a, a while to really pay attention to them. Okay. Because I think there is something where, like, what happens in this film that is really telling or what I think this film is, like, about goes by so kind of subtly and quickly that it doesn't feel as developed as it really is. Which to me, I love, like, Yafet Koto is actually my favorite character in this film because, like, he's the one who's, like, the most pragmatic earthbound. The one mm -hmm. who's, like, yes. grumbling about not getting paid enough to be doing this, grumbling about what they're worth. He's the one that adds this element to Alien that I think makes it interesting, which is in this ship there are people who are divided by, like, how much they're getting paid, how much the company thinks they're worth. We find out that, like, the company doesn't think any of these people are worth anything. The crew no. is expendable, as we see, like, on the screen. But Yafet Koto is the one who, like, is getting paid from that less than everybody else from the beginning, him and um, Harry Dean Stanton. So there's, like, almost this upstairs-downstairs world happening in Alien where, like, they make less money at the bottom, you know, like, working right. literally in the bottom, being the mechanics, being annoyed about it all the time. And because of that, they have more of, like, a pragmatic view of like, why should we even let this guy in? Why aren't we freezing him? Let's just get on with the work. Well, like like the, yeah. literally the first thing they talk about at the beginning of the film, like the first lines of dialogue are them talking about money. Yes. I am cold. Still with us, Brett. Clay. Yeah. Oh, I feel yes. dead. Anybody ever tell you you look dead? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, right. 
I just forgot something, man. Uh, before we dock, mm-hmm. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation has never been on a, an equitable level. Well, you get what you contracted for like everybody else. Yes, but everybody else uh, gets more than us. Oh, his mother wants to talk to you. Uh-huh. Yes, uh, yellow lights from my eyes only. By the way, I love their meal scenes. And I think, again, this is where I feel like the acting is very good. And that, I'm not like railing on the movie. I really enjoyed watching this movie. It's fun and it's alive. But I think these actors are bringing a lot to the surface, right? And so far Wait, we've seen... Wait, because they're like great as hell actors. Oh, and yeah. It doesn't, don't things like the meal scene make you think of Altman films because they're all kind yes. of talking at once. It doesn't yes. feel like you talk, I talk. Like it comes out organically. There's an organicness to the way that they're, the characters are exist and, here. Uh, One million percent. And I will say that I think that Ridley Scott often has a hard time imbuing his actors with a lot of personality. I think he goes for more of a starkness. And I think this movie is beautifully shot and it looks amazing. But these actors really pop. And Sigourney Weaver, I mean, she is... Wonderful. I don't want to take anything away from her. I just think that she's underwritten to a certain extent. That's really what I, that's what I, my issue is. And I just want to pull out this thing that you were talking about with money and things like that. Did you notice that, um, that the decal on the door of the Nostromo is a checkerboard square, which is the symbol on Purina's pet food label? So it was like kind of like this inside joke that these that these space truckers were essentially just food for the alien. Like, and that's really what, like, I mean, you know, it's kind of a, this idea that the the company is sending expendable people. They don't care enough to think about them. They are just really want, I think in their mind, Ian Holm will be taking home the alien. And then that will be all they care about, truthfully. Can I say something really yeah. weird that I just want to say out loud? And maybe anybody listening can back me up that this is a true thing that happened. When I was a little kid, we bought a lot of Purina because we had a cat. Sure. Purina for a while included a, an actual jewel when you bought a bag of Purina. There was like kind of like a cereal box pl- like toy. There's a little like envelope in the middle of your mm-hmm. cat food that was usually a garnet, but sometimes you could win a tiny emerald. What, this so is like insane. a Cracker Jack box? Yeah, it was like a Cracker Jack box of cat food, but you could win a tiny jewel. We had these tiny garnets we kept winning in our cat food. And I feel like I made this up, but I'm, I I know that this happened. I remember it really vividly. Wow. And I, I feel crazy every time I think about it. Okay, well, let's figure that out. I mean, uh, I'm very curious about that. I mean, it makes sense in a way that you would get a little toy in there. I like that. Yeah, but uh, a gemstone? Not even like a picture of a cat. It was like a tiny gemstone. <laughs> That's mental, right? Like, the, a, yeah. now that I think about it, now that I'm an adult, I'm like, a garnet, even though nobody even thinks about garnets, like they're like, you know, the the, the a cheaper ruby. Yeah. That still has to cost more than a bunch of like processed chicken feet dehydrated. Like, why is that there? <laughs> Wait, I want to talk to you about what you just said, though, about Sigourney Weaver. And we, we watched two different cuts. And, you know, I don't think our experience is incredibly different. But the one thing that I mentioned was that there is that scene of Sigourney Weaver not wanting to let Kane back on board. And I wrote down, you know, in my notes, like, it's very funny because she's enacting quarantine she's like we need to be safe and we need to protect ourselves and just in the last year that we've lived in you know you see that very strongly 
Yeah, when you hear that scene, like, you immediately go there. Yeah, Ripley. Right here. We're clean. Let us in. What happened to Kane? Something has attached itself to him. We have to get him to the infirmary right away. What kind of thing? I need a clear definition. An organism. Open the hatch. Wait a minute. If we let it in, the ship could be infected. You know the quarantine procedure. 24 hours for decontamination. It could die in 24 hours. Open the hatch. Listen to me. If we break quarantine, we could all die. Look, could you open the goddamn hatch? We have to get him inside. No. I can't do that. And if you were in my position, you'd do the same. Ripley, this is in order. Open that hatch right now. Do you hear me? Yes. Ripley, this is in order. You hear me? Yes. I read you. The answer is negative. In a hatch open. So right there, Sigourney Weaver does establish that she is the smartest person on the crew because, yes, you don't want to take an alien on board your ship. But... In 1979, I'm guessing the majority of the audience does not think this woman is going to save the day. I think they think it's going to be Dallas. And and watching this film, it's impossible to kind of separate what we know about Ripley and everything else, and even the improbability of that. So I think that there's something that we will always miss in watching this film of just the surprise of like, holy shit, she's the one that saved the day? Like, I mean, I, you know, what, what do you think about that? Like what night people in 1979 were thinking of that? this woman was the hero. You're right. It's hard because it's all kind of stacking up at once, like in the culture right at this moment. Like you and I have never lived in a world where Ripley wasn't a hero. Yeah. Uh, We've never been a conscious movie fan in that. And we've also never consciously like uh, lived in a world where we didn't have this idea of the final girl, that the final girl is the one who survives. Yeah. Because I think now we're so trained with final girls that we'd prepare it. But final girl was relatively new here. It had just happened with Halloween like the year before. As like right. a real thing, oh, as okay. a real trope in cinema. But that it still wasn't like ingrained. Like it doesn't become ingrained until there's enough things that it is ingrained, which doesn't happen yet. Right. So so really it, Jamie Lee Curtis and Sigourney Weaver changed the face of cinema in a certain way or or bring forward this idea of, and not to say the term that we both don't really want to say, but like this badass or this kick-ass woman, it, it really does... They are the the forward-facing people. And we're talking again about John Carpenter and Ridley Scott. And we're talking about The Thing and we're talking about Alien. We're talking about Halloween. It's interesting that the, and yeah. how these And they people... both work with Dan O'Bannon who wrote this. So there's like this connective material. Yeah. There. Really interesting. Like Dan O'Bannon made a sci-fi film with John Carpenter before he wrote Alien. And he was like, it's Dark Star. It's kind of dorky if you see it online. It's like a bunch of guys and they're being haunted on um Oh, I remember spaceship. that. Yeah. Yeah. But the Alien is like a beach ball with feet. Like, I've seen Dark Star. It's it's a cute stunt. It's it's like, we just got out of college. We're going to make a weird-ass film, and we did. Right. And, and, and he writes that film, and then Dan O'Bannon's like, I want to do this for real. Like, that was comic, and I want to do a scary, scary movie. Yeah. But the idea that there are people kind of, like, churning through these ideas all at once. I wonder if we can give Dan O'Bannon then the credit, because it was, like, him who wrote in the script. He wrote all of these characters out. You know, he wrote, like, Dallas and Ripley and Kane. But he didn't write genders on anybody, like on purpose. He wrote like a really stripped down gender neutral script. And then he said, like, specifically, I've I've written this so you can cast anybody in any part. Okay. You know, so you weren't limited by imagination. You weren't limited by anything. And and I I think that's rare. I mean, that I don't think that's rare. That is rare for anyone to write a script where it's like you can cast this completely colorblind, completely gender blind. Yeah. And so because of that, you know, then you do wind up with like the Ripley character being really written gender neutral 
being written maybe a little bit without personal characteristics because they weren't written like, you know, it's like in the war film stereotype. Here I am. I'm Brooklyn and blah, blah, blah. Right, right. They didn't put that in here either. Like it is very neutral. I do think, you know, to the point about like Ripley as the sensible one, maybe it's because of Yafet Koto recently passing and like he's on my mind. And like, I think he gives such a phenomenal performance in this film that I was like watching him extra. And I was like, actually, it's Sigourney Weaver and Yafet Koto who are both the most practical people and would both do the same thing. It's just Yafet doesn't have the power at all. Nobody cares what he thinks. Right. She does, but she just keeps getting overruled and they're not listening to her. Well, you know, it makes it even more interesting that this script, which was written unisex, and, you know, and the fact that there, the gender-specific pronouns were added at the time of filming, not actually in the script, created this thing where, you know, I wonder, if is that Yafa Koto bringing that in? Because it's interesting to be, here's a black man who is the lowest man on the totem pole in a ship full of white people, you know? and it, But yet, the women, there are different levels of where the women are in the ship. You know, it's like, it's... It's kind of fascinating that that worked out the way it did because it is making a social commentary at the same time not being written to make a social commentary, which, you know... uh, Yeah, like, I don't think of Ridley as a social commentary guy, but you do notice that, like, all of the people who die first are the white men. Like, all of Mm -hmm. the white men die first. And then it's just, like, the women in Yafet Kodo. Well, I mean, these space truckers, too, what I love about this film, and again... I, I feel like I know sci-fi, but I don't know years and everything like that. What I love about them is that they are not incredibly smart people, right? They're they're they have their job. They're not they're not they're not master scientists. They're not um, you know they don't have lasers. They are you know they're not warriors. Right? They are normal people, and I think that you know we see a connection to this type of story. Um, obviously in horror, because I think that's a main trope. I think that we see it in sci-fi. I think you saw it in Die Hard. You know, this idea of like, oh, I can relate to these people. Um, and I think yeah. that, that we, I, I think this like is the first time. Like if there is a time. flaw, it's like that Yafet Koto was like running around thinking he can kill the monster at the end and he can't. Right. You know, like and not him, realizing, he wants yeah. to be an action figure. Yes. And like Ripley wins by tiptoeing around and being hidden, which is completely the opposite skill of like coming in guns blazing. Right. This idea of like, let's kill it. How do we kill it? And, you know, when they're showing off the cattle prods and everything and and this idea of there's a desperation here, too. And I don't quite understand what the relationship of this crew is. I don't understand. And this is where I go back to the I think the thing is better because I don't know. I don't even understand who this crew is to people, what they do, because everything they're doing in this movie is out of the norm. Right. We know that Tom Skerritt is the captain, but are they often on these missions together? Like they're stopping before they get to where they need to go. And then it seems like at one point Lambert is so upset about uh, the way that Ripley, re, you know, uh, reacts to Kane. Like, you you know, she gets into a fight with her. But Lambert seems Lambert seems to be so emotionally based like she's like i was like oh does she, I, at one point i was like oh is she in a relationship with kane and then i'm like oh is she in a relationship with dallas no she just is in a kind of in a relationship with everyone like she's just she's like the real beating heart of it like she's the emotion and i feel like i wonder if each one of these characters took a trait or maybe that's how it was written that each one of these characters is just a type of emotion i'm gonna kill i'm gonna attack i'm not afraid I'll deal with it. Like, you know, I'm sensible. It's almost like the seven dwarfs, like that level of, 
you know, adjective for behavior. Well, it's interesting. One of the deleted scenes is actually Ripley asking uh, asking Lambert a really personal question. Uh, here, just listen. Have you ever slept with Ash? <laughs> no. I don't think he was particularly interested. <laughs> so, I mean, from that, like, it's deleted, you know, uh, but. And this I is after the, sense, the reveal? I don't actually know where it fits in because I only saw it as a deleted scene. Got it. So I don't know if it's like right before Ripley knows or right when R- Ash is being weird. Like, once you know that Ash is a robot and you go back and you watch the film, he's so clearly robotic from the beginning. Like, he yes. is, like, very cold and dispassionate. And so you you know when you know. Yes, but I, I thought there was one part that didn't track with me. And, you know, we were talking about The Sixth Sense in a, you know, a long, long time ago. The idea, like, that movie really holds up. Like, they play that movie where you can rewatch it and feel like every part is perfectly done. But there's a moment with Ash where he is alone and they're going to go down to the surface. And you see him kind of blow into his hands and jump up and down. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because that doesn't seem robotic to me. That's true. That is him. And he, it's a weird insert because he looks kind of like skittery too. Like yeah. he looks like he's like, he looks like if I was going to, I don't know, like take my television remote and like hit it against my hand to make it work. Yeah. Like, like, right. But I don't think that is what he's doing. But like, it's, that, that's the only way I can make sense of it. The way that I saw it was like, he's pumping himself up. He's a little bit nervous. Like, okay, <sighs> okay, here we go. You know, it's like 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 you know, like jumping on the sideline at a basketball game or something like that. You well, know, something that's on your mind, huh? Uh, it is, it is. I mean, like we're in the middle of the playoffs. By the time you hear this, you know, we'll see where we are at. Uh, so anyway, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, but I thought you're right for the most part. Besides that one scene, you're right. Once you know, you know, and it's really fun to watch him watch it. But then at a point, I'm like, wow, he's really leaning into it because he. You watch him watch a lot and have no reaction. And this is, again, a crew that's sitting around. Those dinner table scenes are so much fun. Um, And he's very um, disconnected. But I guess in a movie like this, so much is happening that you can it can kind of fall by the wayside. So I do like that Ridley Scott kept true to it. But when you watch it and know it, it's it, it sticks out majorly. It really sticks out majorly. I mean, that said, I still love his speech when he describes, you know, when his like severed head that's filled with like what, milk, caviar, all sorts of yeah, assorted yeah. intestines um, is on the table. And he's like, the way he talks about the alien in his voice, mm. I, it's like one of the times I think he shows a little bit of emotion. He's like respecting how perfect it is. That I, okay, I'm just going to play this and say I felt the tiniest bit of respect for him in that moment. Maybe it's because I'm coming out of Jodie Foster in contact. Yeah. But like to to be in awe of a thing you don't understand is like an emotion that I'm now very obsessed with. And you hear it here. There's got to be a way of killing it. How How do we do it? You can't. It's bullshit. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. 
So for that, I'm like, uh, you're you're a terrible robot and you got everybody killed. But I understand wanting to understand. Well, first of all, I'm not going to say he's a terrible robot. He's doing his job. He is programmed to do his job. His programming is not to make him care. But what I loved was that we often are in sci-fi given robots who are trying to achieve human emotions. How do they become more human? And here, this robot is, how do I achieve more perfection? He looks at that alien as perfection. Now, I will say, this is going to open up something that I think you'll enjoy talking about. Does that say that if the robot looks at the alien in awe and in fear, that means it's a greater organism? But does that mean that the cat is the greatest uh, villain because the alien looks at the cat in awe and fear? Like, what... Like, in that way, is the cat the the highest person on the totem pole? Yes. Absolutely, the cat is the highest person on the totem pole. I mean, the cat is the Like, Ripley from the beginning, from that quarantine scene, is like, if John Hurt has to die, he dies. Like, right. I like him. He's my friend. But we have to do this, right? And then somehow at the end, Ripley, who, like, it's not that she doesn't care about humans, but she also is so hyperlogical decides, wait, no, I'm going to put myself at risk and run all over the ship looking for the cat. The cat is actually more important to me than John Hurt, than my own safety. I'm going to run over looking for this mean-ass cat who does not just one cat jump scare. You know, the classic horror trope where like, where yeah. are you? Where's where's the monster? What's happening? Clatter, clatter, scream. Oh, it's just the cat. That, that fucking cat does that on purpose. He's just hanging out, scaring people. He does it again. Two cat jump scares uh. in one movie. That cat is mean. That like, I, you know, I am a gigantic cat person. Yeah. That is, that cat like when Harry Dean Stanton gets attacked, r- maybe really hates cats. He like cuts to the cat, and the cat looks like it's smiling. And cats don't even really smile, but that cat is like, cool. There he goes. He's like, he's dying. Ha ha. <laughs> that cat does not give a shit, and everybody gets killed trying to find it. You know, it's interesting this idea that they give Sigourney Weaver a cat. And we talk about, you know, in screenwriting, there is a book. Is it uh, her cat? No, it doesn't seem like yeah. it's her cat. Because, yeah. I mean, I think that she is okay with the cat. I think it's a ship cat. Um, I'm going to say for Flambers sh- for cat. For what? For space mice? I guess. I mean, maybe there's something about oxygen. Oh, who knows? Yeah. Uh, I mean, because when she puts that cat in the carrier and throws that carrier, I was like, Jesus Christ, that cat is going to get whiplash in there. Uh, but I guess cats don't. Uh, probably landed on its feet. Just to go back to this idea, like there's a book in screenwriting called Save the Cat, which is maligned by some, embraced by others. It's a very analytical deconstruction of how films should work. Um, Anyway, regardless of the debate around that book, Save the Cat. The idea like you always want to show your hero in the first act doing something that is... uh, likable. So you are with them for the whole film, right? And this idea is like, oh, you save a cat from the tree in the beginning, you're going to follow this character through the end. And I couldn't help but think like, oh, that's really interesting. Like they, they, she's let her whole crew die. She hasn't let them die. They've all done their own thing. And, and look, I don't think that like Lambert and Yafakoto Parker, I don't think that they are left to die. They just got caught. And of course it's, this is the battle here. Um, but I love that she does literally save a cat. I think it does help you feel better at the end that she's kind of escaped or that she's, she is looking out for somebody. It gives you the audience, this other thing 
to, I don't know, if she just escaped by herself, I think the movie would be a little bit darker. The fact that she escaped with the cat makes it feel like, well, she did do She did save somebody there. She did. She, uh, she's not heartless, you know, even though I, I believe that she is being affected by everybody's death. But what do you think about that? That idea that like they have to give her like somebody to save? I mean, it is my least favorite part actually of aliens, like yeah. her having to run oh, around. Oh, aliens! Save Newt. Yeah, yeah. But but I want to I want to talk more about aliens later. I mean, to the darkness. I mean, at least as dark as this is, it's not as dark as it could have been. I, mm-hmm. I want just I want Ridley himself to explain what he thought the original ending was going to be and how she was going to escape. I think she hits the buttons and the alien holds onto the door. She harpoons, it makes no difference. It comes forward and it slams through her mask and rips her head off. Now I'm pitching this to the studio from Shepparton and I can feel the tension over the phone, like this. Rips her head off in this, this long silence. And I said, then I cut to the desktop and the alien's hand comes in and goes. And then in a perfect mimic, mimics Dallas's voice saying, I'm signing off. Hopefully that will take me out. The first executive arrived within 14 hours from Fox. Threatening, sure you didn't do it? threatening to fire me on the spot. So we, really, we, we didn't do that. It's a very scary idea, though. It's a bit Hitchcock, but it's like... Yeah. Oh. Well, that's a dark ending. I mean, oof. Oof, magoof. I mean, it reminds me, we were talking about, like, the original end of uh, Promising Young Woman. Like, there's, like, these ideas where the studio kind of gets in and is like, oh, we need to kind of just bridge it. Because there is something about that. And this is a tricky thing because I love Ripley saving the day, but I also love this, this, you know, you create, you create something that isn't the perfect killer. Right. And she manages to escape it. Oh, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this now because I see how both are fun. Like that's a fun ending. Like to have the bad guy win, but then you'd lose all of what we love about Ripley. Oh man, I'm really torn here. It's tough. I mean, I don't think the studio said no because they were thinking sequel because Aliens doesn't come out for seven years. Yeah. So they weren't necessarily being like, we need our own Star Wars. No, I don't think. Right. But I mean, you know me, like I want to watch The Planet Burn. So I, I, I enjoyed I enjoy that he was willing to go there. And I'm also I think the studio made the better call because this movie is so relentlessly grim and dark. Right. Like, I don't need that extra darkness on it. Like, I'm fine. I'm fine. This is this is such a dark movie. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, let's just even talk about the way that this movie, we talked about how Ridley Scott like kind of paces up tracking shots. This movie is beautifully set up. Like you basically get a lay of the land 
in a very complicated ship and there's a lot of stuff going on and the way that these tracking shots like show you every part of it in silence and um, the movie exists a lot in silence and you really silence feel like and darkness it's darkness like so yeah. silent so dark like there's no lights and as the film goes on like the the walls were pushed in tighter and tighter to create like more claustrophobic scenes and Ridley Scott does an amazing job of 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 that like i mean you really feel like you understand this ship and it's a very different ship and it, there's so much that's copied this movie and gone on for this film but the the set design is so simple but yet complex but doesn't feel old and the hr giger stuff is just mind-blowingly beautiful like when you land on that planet like wow like it is it blows you away i don't know what i'm looking at though and i know that we've tried to explain it in other films like do you have an idea like what do you ever, I mean, I know we've tried to explain it, but I, I don't even know if I have the patience to understand what we are seeing. Like, Oh, the Prometheus and the Covenant of all? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I mean, screw those movies. But like, I think it's, I think it is interesting that, you know, there was this fight with the studio. You know, they land on this planet. And mm-hmm. it was just even, by the way, speaking of planet, like just the way they use not just the visuals, but the sound to really capture how wild this planet is. The sound effects of this movie, I think, do a lot to help like balance out the low budgets. Yeah. Like when you cut between the sound, the quiet on the plane and the sound outside, it's really dramatic. So I want to just give like a quick shout out to that before we like go ahead and rhapsodize about yeah. like, Eager and everything that he invented. So they build this like giant thing they call him the space jockey right just for this one real shot in the film where they like walk up to him and they're like whoa and the studio was like what are you doing why are you spending so much money for one set piece that we're barely using this is crazy you know like you're right we're like doing so much in these confines and um really i don't know if really convinced them but he got them to agree that like this one major shot of the space jockey would make the film feel expensive, even more expensive. Like, and it would give like a lot of prestige to it. And in a way, like the studio's like, fine, you win. And they like sacrifice the, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. But what they get out of it is like when Ridley is ever bored, he can now make like new covenant movies because he opened up the door to this entire other world. I, I guess mean, they made more money off of it like in the long run. I mean, it's such a wild thing because it, defy like you're looking at these people they're so giant and you're like well is that a skeleton like i like knowing what i do know and i guess you know there are things about prometheus that i like there's there are elements that i like i just it never fully works it never like i think because they're trying so hard to like reverse engineer cool it's like wow you love this painting it's almost like isn't the mona lisa beautiful you want to know how she got in that position? It's like, okay, well, now no, I got to be don't. like, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't, I, like, I just like my mind going to like, I don't even know what the fucking thing is. Is are this all, is this all a spine? Is this an egg? Is it the ship? What is this? I don't know. Like, how cool is it that really was willing to let there be a mystery? Like, yes. I have shown you this thing. How fascinating. I can't even explain it. And then he's like, 30 years later, oh, I'm okay, fine. I'll tell, I, I, need, I could use a job. I'll tell you what's happening. Well, I think it's... Like and, I, that's cynical. That's cynical. No, but, also, but it's I, not. It's like, I don't like... I don't care. I like the idea of there being mysteries in the universe. But these great directors of the 70s who have gone back and redone films, and looking at you, George Lucas, like, and will go back and be like, well, what I went to say was this, and what I wanted to say was this, and you had an issue. Well, now I can explain it. Like, 
I think what we are finding, and as somebody who's gotten a lot of notes on scripts in my life, you know, there's this want and desire to explain everything around. And, 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 it, and it weighs down something, whereas, you know, films are a visual medium and we should be engaged by what we're seeing. And we don't have to understand it all because the characters don't understand it all. It's not, it's not crucial for us to understand everything anything about that ship. Like, the less we know, the better, right? And we find out the things that we need to know. That it, this thing hugs, it implants a, an embryo, it shoots out, it has acid for blood, you can't kill it. Like, it's the perfect killing machine. That's all we need to know. We don't need to know anything else. We can assume that this is another crew that had the same situation, but... Yeah, I, but I we did, know what the characters know, and I right. think that's great. And it's and I fun, think- I think what it is, is in the aggregate, I know me being like, oh, fuck Covenant. Like, that's not totally fair. There are yeah. bits in it that I think are good. There's bits that I think are lame. I think, but my, my the core of my aggression is because we have these directors who invented new worlds and just showed us shit we had never seen before. Really yes. did that with this movie. George Lucas did that with Star Wars. Um, James Cameron did that over and over again. Like, these these. Titans did amazing stuff, and it bums me out to no end that now they're all just back in that universe or giving up. Like, they, they couldn't go further than what they first showed us. I, like, I want to think of these films as the potential for them to take us everywhere in that these men kept circling back into just the loop of where, the, where, where they were as younger men. Right. It makes me sad. Like, there but- is nothing that makes me more depressed than James Cameron giving up the rest of his life to make Avatar because every single thing that man did was, is fascinating. And, and no just one's to stop asking for it, but that's the difference. Like no one's ferment, asking for and that's, it. And really fermenting in the alien world. I don't understand but it. This like, is like, but people are asking for alien. People are asking for Star Wars. No one's asking for Avatar, which is even more bizarre to me. Yeah. But I also think, and maybe I'm wrong on this and I'm sure there are different examples, but there's also this idea of really being influenced by amazing artists when you look at H.R. Giger's work, like, he brought in someone to think outside of the box. And look, the studio, like you said, they were like, oh, wait, hold on. This is, like, too sexual. This is too weird. And, you know, you said before, I just want to bring it up, that um, the this is a low-budget movie, which I did not know. And I saw that, like, the budget was 4.2. They doubled it to 8.4 uh, off of seeing the storyboards. But those storyboards of these rooms, of these things, it's like, that influence is so is so gigantic. And I think George Lucas did the same thing. Like, you know, when you look at the storyboards for Star Wars, like they are unbelievable. Like they are true. They are true. Like they're beautiful. They are true artists in there. They're not rendered in a machine. They are, they are someone working outside the medium of film in a way and going like, here's what I think. And then that is, you know, pulled together. And I think, you know, uh, the successful Star Wars that continue use those same designs and then embrace the thing because it's, I think we miss that sometimes. I think that sometimes what we can do in a computer doesn't have some of the scope or the idea or like bringing in these artists and these different, you know, I just love that idea of taking a risk and, and mixing mediums in a way. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, and this is on my mind because, you know, like, the Indiana Jones 40-year anniversary just came out. Yes. And so, a like, great article, by the way, in the New York Times, which we have oh, linked to you. on our uh, Twitter page. Oh, thank you. I was thinking about it because, like, I wrote this piece a really long time ago that I think touches on this because it, it's it's indie-related. It's called The Great Rewind. Mm-hmm. I did it for LA Weekly, and it was about these kids in the Raiders of the Last Remark. I, I yes. know I talked about this when we did our Raiders episode. But, like, where the, the point that I wanted to make in that essay 
wasn't just like, hey, these kids did a thing. It's like the shift that happens from the time Alien comes out. Start, it's like starting around this period and it's co- it's like codified by the end of the 80s. Right. Where how the ability to watch a movie that you like whenever you want to watch it then like kills the imagination of the film industry. Because right. when you're making Alien, the idea, yes, that like Dan O'Bannon, who like knew H.R. Giger from working on um, the Dune film that never came to fruition, was able to be like, I want this weird ass crazy artist who said yeah. things like this. Like there's a great Japanese documentary on Giger. Like if you want to just like hear a guy say weird shit in an amazing accent, like this is this is amazing. This is him talking about the design of his eggs. The professionals are watching my work with interest. Probably the realization of a design like mine is new to them. The original idea for the eggs opening was a kind of mobile elastic slit, but the production felt that this was too directly reminiscent of female sex organs and worried about possible censoring in Catholic countries. So we settled on a similar but crosswise shape, which satisfied both the Catholic countries and my own sense of forms. But so, like, I think what happens is, like, these artists came up with crazy stuff because they weren't able to watch their favorite movies on Rewind. Yeah. Like, sure, they were influenced by stuff. Like, Ridley himself has said, like, super directly that he decided to make Alien because of Star Wars. Like, he was going on this, like, really esoteric direction with his career. Yeah, well, I mean, he said Star Wars 2001 and and Texas Chainsaw Massacre were the three films that influenced yeah. him the most. Which, it, it's, yeah. it's totally right. But he was going to make, like, um, I think, like, a Tristan and He's Old or something like that. Okay. And then he sees Star Wars. He's like, oh, I want to do that. Because I'd seen Star Wars, uh, oh, God, probably a month before I received the script. Somebody said to me, let's go along and see this film called Star Wars. I don't know what the hell it's all about, but it's making a big fuss. It was the opening week, and I went and saw that, and of course I was stunned. I mean, I, I was absolutely devastated. I was really depressed for a week uh, <laughs> that I was preparing Tristan the Soul on the one hand, which is fine, you know, but it's like walking into the lion's mouth doing a film like that. I mean, you're, gonna, you're never going to have a real audience for that, and it's still going to take a year of your life, and, and I, I, back, I just dropped it, and I decided I can't be doing this when this guy's doing that. And I can see that as fulfilling as doing Tristan Assault. So he really whetted my appetite, actually, Lucas. You know, even that's fine. Like, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. But I think, like, what happens is these guys invent something cool. And then, like, a generation of film executives watches Alien on VHS. VHS shows up. Mm -hmm. Then DVD. You can watch the things that you thought were cool. And I think you just don't grow beyond that. Like you don't discover the H.R. Giegers of the world because you're not like interested in art as much oh, because you're watching Alien on yeah. repeat. You're not bringing in novelty because you're trying to make copies of the things that did really well that influenced you. But it keeps us from getting past here. I will once again rail against like slithery insect mouth within mouth within mouth aliens that like are brilliant here and i am so sick of them now and when are we going to stop trying to make aliens like this the fact that all of these directors came out at the same time and blew up what our idea of what a pop culture film could look like and then we haven't moved past it just is endlessly frustrating to me right because like i want more i want more mind-blowing stuff like seeing H.R. Giger's ships here, or like his, 
I love the idea that like we're in a ship that looks like you're already inside an animal. And then yes. with all of the shipping, all of the all of the wires of the ship and the framework of it looking like you're inside ribs. And then the monster going inside John Hurt. It's like these nesting dolls of like creepy body ideas. Yeah. And I want to see something new that blows me out of the out of the, out of the water the way like this did. And I can't because we're still just aping it. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, you see a lot of interesting ideas. I'm going to just throw it out there and, you know, further discussion on our Discord or in in our social media world. Like, someone like James Gunn, I think, does a really cool job at breaking a mold of a Marvel movie in a way with Guardians and the look of Guardians and what it can do. And But you're right, like, there are... There's safety nets that we have put in place, and every now and then when someone breaks them and does something, even if it's one-fourth interesting, it's so engaging. I think the reason why people love Thor Ragnarok, and I'm talking about, like, mainstream commercial movies, because I think Alien is a mainstream commercial movie. Like, you lean in. Like, you go, ooh, like, what? I've not seen that. And it's like, it's just breaking the mold of what we've seen. We've all seen that fucking Cloverfield monster in every iteration. Oh. You know, so much so that when I watch Adam Wingard make King Kong versus Godzilla, and I like Adam's, uh, I'm talking like I'm a friend of Adam's, I'm not, uh, but I like his work so much. Um, it, like the guest is wonderful. Um, the guest but is great. So good. Yeah. But like what I love that he did with King Kong and Godzilla was like, they just look like King Kong and Godzilla. And like sometimes like just going backwards and just like, let me just see something that looks like a real fucking ape. Like, you know, it's like we've fallen into this trap of like, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's I think the Mandalorian works because we're going back to puppets. We're doing things. We're doing like practical things and mixing things. It's it's hard. I totally agree with you. Like we're, we're get, we're in a creative visual rut. And I think it's yeah. because we know how to make certain things in a computer. And if we're not challenging how to expand that or go back or mix media, like we are, we're kind of dying as far as pushing limits. And I think, you know, look, as much as I hate avatar, uh, or, or I don't even hate is a strong word. I mean, find it to be fine. Like, at least someone's pushing forward something there. At least someone's going like, well, what about this? Like, what about, like, something crazy? And and I should applaud that, you know, because at least it is defined. No, I agree. Like, weirdly, I, when I think of King Kong versus Godzilla, I think of the scene of Kong falling into the center of the earth and floating upside down. Yeah. And just, like... That beautiful Lisa Frank stoner moment that's just on screen. Yeah. And it doesn't, you don't need anybody to jump in and be like, you see the magnetic polarity of the inside yes. of the earth is such that Kong now floats upside down. Like, who gives a F? Like, I don't care. Show me Kong flying. Like, show me just some awe. I just want us to burst past this moment. And I think, like, it's interesting we're having this conversation about a film that itself was very open about the fact that it wasn't trying to be original in a lot right. of ways. You know, when you when Dan O'Bannon was asked, like, you know, did you steal parts of your ideas for Alien? He was like, I stole everything. I stole literally everything. He's like, I took, you know, chunks from 2001. I took chunks from Star Wars. I took chunks um, oh, from the thing. Like, there's a, the reason why there is so much of the thing. And here's Dan O'Bannon was also like, I'm stealing from the original thing. And he's, they synergize it in a world that I think because it's so visual, it feels spectacular and important yes. and new. And I think that there is – like, imagine if this film had its original name. Like, what if instead of being called Alien, it was just called Star Beast? 
If you literally uh, only changed the title, do you think this film would have as much respect? If it was Star Beast. Oh, you have to see Star Beast. Well, I mean, but you could say a thing for Star Wars. Like, if you didn't know anything else, like, Star Wars, does that sound cool? Like, you know, Star Wars sounds so, la- it's so generic. It, 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 it is, y- yeah. You know, and, but I think, you know, it's hard to separate because we know the titles now are so synonymous. And we have silly titles that we love, but they are you know, we lo- yeah. it, like we, we embrace them in a weird way. So That's I, true. Yeah. But Star Wars is, I think, poppy enough that it can get away with it. Star could Beast this, is pretty. I mean, could Star this Beast film could be get lame. away as dark as this is. I don't know if it could get away with Star Beast. I think you probably are right. I, I think you're really right. Hard to. Yeah, you couldn't be like Star Beasts. Um, you know, I bet you it would become Beast. Like, oh, yeah, I see Beast. Beast was yeah, good. SB, yeah. SB2. Yeah, SB. Um, I mean, SB3, and then the three would be the B. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. You know, titles are hard. Uh, it is. That's a good title because it is very much indicative of what you're going to be seeing. But, you know, they said they came up with the title for Alien because at a certain point, the, the word Alien was in the script more than any other word. Okay. I want to ask you this question. I have a lot of stuff mm-hmm. I still want to talk about here. Yeah. Do you... Like Alien or do you respect Alien? I respect Alien. I think Alien is good. Like, I think Alien is very good. I realized in this rewatch of it, while I enjoyed it and there are some great moments to it, it is not as fulfilling to me as, like, again, pound for pound, I'm watching the thing over Alien. Um, I think you could talk about uh, a lot of similarities in, across the board, but I think Alien is not, I think the thing did a better job. Just, just that's my gut. But I really love Aliens 2 a lot more than I love Alien 1. And I know that that's a big argument that people have too. Like, I think people often say like Godfather 2 and Aliens are the two sequels that, you know, trump their predecessor. Many people argue that. I know you're one, especially with Godfather 2. And, and I've maybe even come around to that a little bit as well. I think I respect this movie. I, I love respect the design. I respect the acting. I... I think the choices are inspired, but I think it could have been maybe better. How about I mean, that? Yikes. I, I really respect this movie too, but I, do, I am aware that all of my favorite... I'm, I respect this movie, I think, because I've really worked to respect this movie. Right. Like, I mean, I think you have... I think you go through phases of a movie like Alien. You watch it once and you're like, oh my God, right. this is wild. I've never seen anything like this. And then you watch it again and you're like, okay, everything kind of interesting is really in the first half. And then as soon as the thing busts out of the chest, it's a lot of dark hallways. It's like dark hallways for the entire second half of the film. Dark hallways and creeping and dark hallways and creeping. And I used to be like more annoyed than I am now about Ridley getting in her underwear for no reason and like bending over and showing her ass crack. Because I was like, why? Her underwear looks really uncomfortable. Like, I don't know how much. You're an actor. You've worn a lot of crazy underwear. Yeah. Her underwear looks so pointedly uncomfortable. I'm like, why is she wearing this? I mean, she. I, like, I thought that there was a joke in there. And I know, you know James Cameron talks about how he would never have put that scene in the movie and for her uh, to undress. I don't think that that's a... I don't think it's a sexualized moment. I actually think what I love about that... Well, I would like to hear what yeah. you think of it, too. I think it's the most that we are vulnerable is out yeah. of our clothes. And I think that, like... To put her in that moment with that alien and have nothing on. And she's not naked, right? Like, she's not naked. Uh, but that, I love that scene. I actually really love that scene. But I also thought there was a joke there about plumber's crack. I felt like they were like, oh, she's a trucker. She's got plumber's crack. That's why we're saying. But yeah, that, that underwear is so bizarre. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think it is a little sexualized. I think it is also about vulnerability. My main thing is just like that's the most unflattering pair of underwear as well. And I just yeah. want her to be wearing like space briefs. Yes, like, I agree. Nice space briefs, like those. Oh, those look terrible to wear. Um, but talk to me about that, like, because I may have missed that sexualization of it. Because I definitely understand that that is there. Like, what? Like, do you think you could accomplish that? Because I think that that's what he was going for. Is like if I was in my underwear in my house and I heard a burglar in my house, I would be, I, I feel defenseless. Like, you know, it's like, a, there's not like, a, you know, not that I need pockets, but like, there is something so scary to that. Like, you know, uh, I don't know. No, I, I, to me, it's really just that there is that extra shot of her bending over and putting okay. grass in the, it, it really, like, if it wasn't that, Okay, I, I could make I, yeah. more peace with it. It's just it's really that shot. It's like she gets into her underwear and then it's like, I have to go pick up something. Whoops. And you're like, really? That's okay. weird. I hear that. Okay. It, it, and it's just because this film is perhaps because of the way it was written. It is so desexualized for most of it right. that it pops and it just feels a little strange. But honestly, it really is that I just think that underwear looks uncomfortable as hell. And I, I don't mean, like if I'm too. like going to be oh. asleep in a pod and I'm going to be wearing like low hanging strings. Like, oh, this is so cool. The worst. Um, but anyway, that's a detour. I think like what happens then with Alien when you keep watching it is like when you start like really deepening your relationship with what this film is saying about like class and expendability, which is there. But it gets, mm-hmm. I, for some reason, maybe it's just my mindset. It gets more deep to me the more that I watch this film. Well, I also think it's the the way that the the prequels and the, the way it moves forward leans into that. So I'm also like, can we disconnect yourself from what we now know? Because the Wayland of it all really becomes the driving force of this movie, right? Like to, I mean, of the movies. Just if you watch it by yourself, not knowing, you know, that the Paul Reiser even part of it, because. The, they definitely lean into that, the, that they are expendable, even though it's there, 100%. No, you're right. That's fair. You're right. Like, am I seeing those layers in it more because of the prequels and because we are talking about, like, labor constantly because we have to be, because it's breaking right. down in America, like, visibly? Right. Um. Yeah. Can I give Can I give Alien the credit for that? Can I at least say I'm glad that Alien, if it had any plot in there, it put it in there? Okay. The more I watch Alien, the more bored I get in the second half. Honestly, Mm -hmm. the more I'm like, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, already. Um, But I do sometimes still notice things like today, this watch, what really popped out at me is the difference in leadership that the film puts forth between like Tom Skerritt and Sigourney Weaver, because it really dawned on me that they both have the same moment. They sit with the crew and they're like, here's what we're going to do. But when you listen to the way Tom Skerritt delivers that, he makes it so clear that that Dallas is just a shitty leader. Like Dallas is a bad leader. And he like, listen to the way he sighs when he's like trying to work up the esteem to be like, all right, here's what we're going to do. Two teams, Ash, Lambert and I, Ripley, you take Parker and Brett. Now anyone see this thing or catch it in the net that Parker is holding on his lap? Parker, I don't want any heroics out of you, all right? Catch it, put it in the airlock. Get rid of it. Channels are open on all decks. I want you to communicate, keep in touch at all times, all right? Let's go. It's probably because I'm still really mad at the Lakers coach. It just popped out at me. Huh. Like, that's, how, that's how a guy sounds when he's in charge and he expects to lose. Be like, okay, we'll see. Here we go. Like, he's not motivating right. anybody to survive. He's bad. He's bad at Was rallying he in on it? to do together. Was he in on it? I don't think so. 
Do you I mean like was he secretly he, promised a big bonus if he like? I think he knew more than he let on because he had access to mother, right? Do but mother that, wouldn't tell him. Okay. He couldn't figure out like the scenes with the mother are like those old school computer games. You're like, can you open the box? What's in the box? Right. And like he's bad at that too. Yeah. Know, but like anyway, contrast the way that he sounds with the way that like Ripley sounds when she has that same scene. We'll move in pairs. We'll go step by step and cut off every bulkhead and every vent until we have it cornered. And then we'll blow it the fuck out into space. Is that acceptable to you? It means killing it. Obviously, it means killing it. But we have to stick together. How are our weapons? The weapons are fine. This one needs refueling. Will you get it, please? Ash, go with him. No, no, I can manage Ash. You don't follow me. Ash? Any suggestions from you or mother? No, we're still collecting. <laughs> you what? You're still collating? I find that hard to believe. What would you like me to do? Just what you've been doing, Ash. Nothing. I've got access to Mother now, and I'll get my own answers. Thank you. She just comes in sounding more like a leader. It, I don't know. I don't want to say that leadership is all like you have a great person cheering you on. Um, like your ideas have to be smart too. But she just is more competent in how she handles that scene. Right. And I don't think this movie, because of like the gender neutrality, is saying anything about sexism and like in particular. You know, I don't think she's ignored because she's a woman. I don't think that's here. Right. No, I don't think that that I don't think that that is there either. I think what is interesting about Ripley is that she is pragmatic above uh, emotion. You know, and I think you're know, talking about Halloween. And scary films, because this movie definitely owes a lot to horror films, and I think it's a body horror film, and I think it's actually a horror film. I mean, there's there's very little difference between Mike Myers, uh, you know, to a certain extent, and and, and Alien. Um, no, it's true. The like, creature. Where I, the, the one thing that I think Alien does really well is that the people who get picked off are not, like, young teenage hotties. Right. Like, if, this, yes. if they made this movie with all young teenage hotties, I don't think it would have nearly the impact that oh, it does, a- like, absolutely. with all of these people with interesting faces. I, I totally agree. And I think what I was saying about this idea that uh, that she's pragmatic, I think what what is different about her is that we've only seen the, oh, my God, oh, my God, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. Even, like, Nev Campbell, who is turning that on its head and scream, you know, the aware mm-hmm. of this trope has emotional moments. And Sigourney Weaver is doing internal emotional moments, um, but she's always calm and cool and collected. I think she's the yeah. version Lambert of all... Lambert is the one who's like, oh my God. And, and you're right about Parker, too. You have a code, like, oh, just motherfucker. Like, they're all, you know, uh, you know, they're all... Everyone is is wearing their emotions. Uh, and And very rarely do you see a hero... Even even John McClane, you know, uh, you know, you see more emotion on him uh, than you do on Sigourney Weaver. And I think that that's a very strong choice. It's interesting that it was Sigourney Weaver and Meryl Streep were going head to head for this part. Uh, and Meryl Streep, you know, 
I don't know if she lost it because of, but she couldn't do it because uh, she was, you know, grieving her, yeah. uh, her John Cazal uh, at that point. Um, but by the way, I see, though, when I see those two women, I go, oh, wow, that's a, I could see them both playing it similarly. Yeah. It's funny. You, Sigourney, we were talking about her, of course, like in Galaxy Quest. And now she makes that crack about like girls and people in Woody Allen films. And like, yes, like, you're right. Like she was even, she even had a tiny bit in like a Woody Allen film in, in um, Annie Hall. But she was so unfamous when this film came out that when I was looking at, when I was looking at like her interviews, um, her very first interview with this woman who has like all of her stuff online uh, is just funny because the woman has nothing to ask her about except her name. Sigourney, first of all, I have to welcome you to Texas. Thank it's you. very nice having you here. I have never seen or heard the name Sigourney. What's the origin of the name? Um, you mean the real origin of the name? Well, or? I mean, is it is it uh, an ethnic name or, you know? I don't know. I think it, it's Slavic. I know there's a Slavic root that's pronounced, um, it's often pronounced Sigourney, and there's a Slavic root called Zigoiner, which means gypsy, like the Noel Coward song, Zigoiner. But um, I... Uh, it's not a family name, so I have no, I don't have any specific background on it. Do you have a middle name to go with Sigourney? Well, my real name is Susan Alexandra Weaver, and Sigourney was a name that I, I started using when I was 14, really as sort of a lark, just one of those things you decide to do when I was at an all-girls school, and I, everyone called everyone by their last names, and I got tired of being called Weaver. so. I just chose it out of an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, and I never dreamed that it would stick, and yet it did. But actually, later on in that interview, like you, when you can tell that like Sigourney spends the whole interview like nervous and like leaning back on her heels, like I don't know what this is, how this right. is going to go. I'm not used to doing press. Why are we talking about the origin of my name? She does say something that I think ties into what you're saying here. That the hard part about making this film for her was that there weren't a lot of relationships built into the script between her and the cast. And so figuring out how to play it, well, I'll let her talk about it. It's hard for an actor because it's a very technical film and the relationships are not the focus of the movie. The relationships have to be understood and they have to be played, but through the action of the film, that was very challenging. I really had so much to do to think about that I didn't think about, um, you know, about my options. And I felt very at home in the character who I think is, is very different from me. I mean, my reaction in the same situation would, would probably be to make terrible jokes a lot. You know, I, I don't think I would, I wouldn't uh, come, come through in the same way that Ripley does. I would uh, probably uh, wise off a lot. Interesting. So it's, it's interesting that like she, I mean, she's very aware of that even as she's doing that. Like the weight on her to tell, as she puts it, like relationships through action, because there aren't those scenes. Yeah. And I'm I'm glad that there aren't the bad versions of those scenes. Here's my baby back at home. Can't yeah. wait to see him again. Like, well, ugh. I love watching her listen to Dallas and watching her eyes. And she's such a great, there's so much going on. Her face is like, there's something so engaging about her face. Um it's very open, it's very clean, it's very white in a very dark space. And I know that everyone, you know, um, the lighting in this movie is great, but there's something about, like, she, you're just, you're right. you're really pulled into her eyes. I feel like I was yeah. watching, I was like, oh, I'm, I, I see what's going on here. And, you know, it's interesting. She's, like, watchful. She's really yes. watchful. And, like, there's something, 
She has the same face that I think um, Seth MacFarlane has, weirdly. Mm. Like, where they look like you could draw a very simple cartoon sketch of them. You're like, right. here's a circle or an oval and two dark spots. And I love that about Seth MacFarlane's face, too. Like, there's this blankness to them that I think is really open and interesting. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, They'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. You know, I think what this movie does a good job in, and going back to really looking at it from your perspective about class and working and corporations and things like that too is you know we often are in situations where we are being led by someone that we know we are smarter than or we know that we could do better job than and it doesn't have anything to do with let me say it like this yes the a lot of the times it has to do with i think uh sex and race like well automatically drop people down. But at the same time, I think that if you have two white men speaking to each other, there could be one white man posturing to have more knowledge and keep them out. And we've talked about this in contact, this idea of like, mm-hmm. I'm going to take the credit, I'm going to do this. And interesting that Tom Skerritt is in both of these films, kind of similar roles. Harrison Ford turned down this role. Interesting. I think Harrison Ford would have been more likable, which may have actually been Interesting to see, because I didn't really feel that much when people died in this movie. Like, I didn't, like, I wasn't, like, totally, like, oh, no. Um, but I'll just say that. I didn't that, feel like, that much when he died. I love Harry Dean Stanton. I, I love Harry him. Dean Stanton, yeah. And Harry Dean Stanton is in it for such a long, like, a short period of time, and he's so good. Uh, yeah. And Yalfet Koto. Yes. Did you, do you, did you feel that there was, like, a chance of some sort of relationship, maybe, between, like, Lambert and... In Parker Yafet Koto's character, like the uh, like, I felt kind of sad that like the two of them were alone at the end. It seemed like he was flirting with her, and it seemed like she was a little bit not sure, but maybe open to it. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of like sex that was cut out of this movie. Did you know that? Like, there was like, there's so much like, I mean, it's interesting because I think that they leaned into some of these, uh, these like. <sighs> Like not grindhouse, but uh, but this idea of like they, I think they were like, I think there was a lot of flirting. I think they were like, look, he talks about like wanting to go down on a woman at, at dinner. Mm-hmm. I mean that you know it's like I think he's definitely doing that. You know the original end for him, by the way, with with uh, with Parker and Lambert was kind of crazy. Like uh, it was like uh the alien kills parker and then holds parker up as a shield as lambert uses the flamethrower she, she like basically barbecues him alive oh that's yeah. brutal yeah. oh that's harsh yeah i mean oh, that's like, he's, so dark i know as you're talking about these ideas of like the movie could have been even more dark uh jesus i mean oh did you know by the way that like yafet koto um 
after this movie came out, like he was offered the part of Lando uh, directly oh, really? from like Irv Kirshner. That like Irv Kirshner wow. was like, I want you to be Lando. And Yafet Koda was like, I don't want to stay in space and be typecast as the space guy. Mm. You know, Yafet Koto, I, I mean, hats off to him. He has an amazing yeah. career from uh, a great James Bond villain and one of my favorite Roger Moore James Bond movies to also Midnight just Run. Midnight Run. So good. Uh, but he would have been a great Lando, actually, because I think what I I love Billy D. Williams and that role. Obviously, Lando is so synonymous with his portrayal of him. Billy D. Williams is cool. Yafakoto as Lando would be like, oh, I don't fuck with that guy. Like, there's an there's something about him. They'd be like, oh, that guy's like, like the, you know, his size and his energy would be a little yeah. bit more like Harrison Ford had. I think Harrison, like, I think that Yafakoto and Harrison Ford are very similar in the sense that they could be very charming and also be this rogue. Like, you could like you could buy Harrison Ford killing someone as 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 uh, Han Solo. And Indiana I think Jones yeah. wins fights by kicking people in the crotch. Han Solo wins fights by shooting people first. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's a... Because what we know about Lando is that he finagles to become, like, the leader of a town. Yes. Yeah, he wins it. And you feel like with Billy D. Williams, they're just like, you're cool, you're in charge. But, like, Yafet Koto, you'd be like, what did you do? He did stuff, right. Yes, exactly. I I think that that's really interesting. And, uh, no, I I, I would have loved... I would love to see that casting choice. Um, but yeah, there. I mean, Yavikoto, I, like I've always really liked him. I actually named, uh, I wrote a, I wrote like a comic book series called Aliens vs. Parker. And the lead character of the the book, it was very much uh, a comedy version of, of of Aliens. It was my first comic book I ever wrote. And uh, Yavikoto inspired his this. name. Yeah. Um, it was Did the first you have one. Jones in it? Um, we did not have Jones in it. No, because it was, you know, we, we, took our own things and did our own things and uh, but it was super fun um, but yeah I mean Yavakoto definitely works all these characters work I mean even what I think I was really even surprised at in this film is how little you see of the alien very much like Jaws it is I, I again my knowledge of what the alien looks like what the cover art looks like all the things we now know what the alien is the reveal of the alien is big and even in this film at the end when you finally see it it's you it's still more hidden than you know we now we now know and i think that they did a great job of that kind of performance as well in this movie like yeah. like the fact it was a human you can tell it's a human in parts because there's one scene that's kind of comical where the hands just kind of like ah like it almost looks like jazz hands at a uh, at a moment <laughs> But yeah. uh, but they do a good job of like hiding that. I think I think they do a really good job. I mean, Balaji Badeo is like the guy who was inside the alien monster outfit, and he, that he did study like Tai Chi and movement so that he would move more unexpected. Mm-hmm. I think that's fantastic that he's not just like here I come, I'm giant and I'm scary. He's not Frankensteining everywhere. Like yeah, that the alien has grace. I think is great. It. it and the humans really don't. For some reason, one thing that really popped out of me this time is like when John Hurd gets the face hugger on him, it's because he's looking at these eggs and he just like out of nowhere trips. Like, what are you falling on? He like it does. It's one of yeah. the least natural falls I've ever seen. Uh, you know, what? I thought like I could tell like that whole area was pretty slippery. And I was like, oh, I feel like this is like a very slippery like a slippery slope, like a slippery area. Like I, 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 there was something about it where I'm like, oh, I'm in those big moon boots and I'm trying to walk on this thing. I could see myself slipping. But yeah, I guess... They aren't that graceful. It's 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 a it's a really klutzy. It's like I have to trip. Now. I feel like you can see him think that, 
and no, no diss on John Hurt because I think he's fantastic. And I like that when the movie starts, you get that time with him personally at the end. Like you're watching him alone wake up, you know? Yes, yes. And sort of breathe and stretch. And to have that with him before he dies um, is wonderful. By the way, I want to play one little bit from the chestburster scene, uh, which is just the alien scream. Because I love Ooh. how that tiny thing screams. Let's listen yeah. to it. <laughs> I went I kind of like a rabbit hole of like how that scream came to be. And I found out that the person who did the scream was an ornithologist named oh, Percy Edwards, who was actually pretty famous in Britain because like he was always on the BBC talking about how he could imitate every bird call. Like oh, he, wow. would, he would literally just go on the BBC and be like, oh, do you want to hear a robin? Oh, would you like to hear a swan? Oh, wow. And so um, I found a clip of him doing a lion and his lion is crazy. Oh, wow. Let me hear this. What's the biggest animal you do? Um, an animal such as um, a lion, for instance. Yeah. That's big in your reckoning, is it? Enough, So, yes. uh, not for the roar so much as, you know, when a lion rubs against the bars of the zoo, <coughs> and everybody says, oh, golly, that's a lovely sound. I'm glad I haven't got a pussy on the half like that. Just... <coughs> <coughs> Do you frighten people? You mean to, to deceive people or spruce them? Yes. Oh, no, I'd rather try it on the on the on the animals. I love it when the when the baby alien comes out and he looks around like that 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 they took the pause for that little baby to be like I'm taking stock, not like yeah. I burst out and I'm I'm coming out and I'm gonna kill everybody because I know what I'm doing. It's like where am I? What's happening? Okay, now I can get out of here. It's probably also because I've been looking at that meme too much of the cat that's angry at spinach and the woman that's yelling at him. Oh, yeah, that yeah, yeah. The, That the chest burster now has like well, extreme that's a, cat that's a, who doesn't like spinach energy. Isn't that, isn't that, um, gosh, uh, from Real Housewives? I think so. John Hurt actually like has been asked a million times. There's like rumors that go around that scene. Like, did the people who were on set know that he was going to burst out? What was going to happen? I mean, Veronica Cartwright looks particularly upset because she gets like blood in her eye. And she's like, oh, my God. Uh, so here's John Hurt answering that question. But the actual burst through is a, it's on the end of a stick. And that's wonderful, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the simplest things, you know. And it got one prop man under the table. I was pushing like, you know, <laughs> coming through, yeah, Alf. <laughs> no, Eric, I can't see nothing. <laughs> Hang on, Alf. <laughs> Is it coming through, yeah? Yeah, oh, that looks more like it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on, push it a bit harder. Now, push it a bit harder and it went through. He said, that's it, that's the way to do it. Then. So that's actually how it was done. Um, and then the cast was brought back in again, right. and so on. But what? Well, eventually. Uh, and of course, it's the myth has it that they didn't know what was going to happen. Well, of course they knew what was going to happen because they read the script. Sure. But um, they didn't know how it was going to happen. You see, it's fact and truth again. Uh, and how it was going to happen was very different because uh, they put little explosive caps and really used about five, five, six cameras, I think, yeah. on that scene. So they should have guessed something was going to happen because you don't use in a film that many cameras unless you want to catch something. By the way, one of the other deleted scenes, uh, if you go looking for them, is uh, that when John Hurt wakes up, he just starts like 
eating and eating and eating. They're really building this idea of him like feeding the the monster inside of him. It was like a person with appetite trying to fill himself up. I want to, I want to float something past you. Yeah. What if we also did aliens? Because I know we did a vote between alien and aliens and we Amy, this sure. is this is what we've talked about. This idea that we could call an audible in the moment, and 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 we could we could use it for our own good. And I think I, you don't have to convince me. I'm in. Are you because already in? Because I was going to try to convince you. I have an argument. No, I I don't need an argument. I want to watch okay. it because I want to watch it the same way I wanted to watch Godfather right after watching. Godfather two, right after watching yeah. Godfather one, like I want to see because it's on my mind. I'm I'm fresh in it, and there's something about it where it's like what I think you're responding to, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth at all, uh, is people who did the work, and Ridley Scott is one of them as well, uh, Damon Lindelof, James Cameron. There is so much here, like there's so much like, ooh, what's this? What's that? What's this? That they use to dig up to open up worlds and plots and characters and things. And so I think what we're reacting to is this movie is very good. It is a chapter in a much larger book. And it's hard now to read the chapter without acknowledging that it's part of a larger book. I think if mm-hmm. this movie just comes out and it, and it never goes forward, we're like, oh, that was a cool character. I don't think that Ripley is as iconic. I think that she would always be known but like you even look at Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis is iconic because she's played that role like what, five times? You know, mm-hmm. um, I just think that there is something, there is a conversation to be had here. Uh, and, and it's because this is laid at groundwork. It, it basically is like every piece of this house, every room of this house has something cool in it. So if you just take one piece from every room, you have a whole nother movie that you can base it on. So I, I, I definitely, I, I, I'm in, I'm all in. Okay, let's do it. Because like this movie to me just established a few things that I want us to do. One, I was like, I want to weigh this against aliens. Thank you. Good. I'm glad. Two, was it reminded me that you and I really do need to eventually do that Thelma and Louise episode because I want to like test my like subconscious theory that that's like the Ridley Scott outlier that may be his best movie that may be the one that we should put on here okay three this movie made me think I think we need to give Texas Chainsaw Massacre a shot because that movie so strongly influenced this one Mm. that I think we should go to that source material and and maybe see if that's what we put in to get like our like slow slow jump scare. Ah, what's happening? Where am I? What's going yeah. on? All right, I love that. I, I mean, okay. I've never seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so I'm excited. Oh, watch it very watch it in your darkest room all by yourself. Oh man, I don't know if I I feel like you're setting up for a disaster. Well, it's at two in the morning when the oh, crow crows three times, um, and the popcorn is just salty enough. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I I love talking about movies like this and I feel like it's fun to go back and really examine like what we like about movies, why we like these movies. Um, and, and it's okay that they can be trumped. It's okay. Maybe we'll find they haven't been trumped. I don't know. I mean, all I can understand is that this movie engaged people on such a level uh, that it called for all these sequels. Like we said before, like people aren't asking James Cameron for Avatar sequels. I, I don't think. Um, no, but people are no. asking for more aliens, more Sigourney Weaver. Will you come back? Look, we're in the middle of right now, Harrison Ford being like, I don't know if you saw this, you talked about it earlier, 
But uh, Harrison Ford, they're making a new Indiana Jones movie directed by James Mangold, who did the amazing Wolverine film. And they clearly are de-aging him because there's been photos leaked online of like a guy like in a Harrison Ford mask. Um, You know, so they're doing things. But these are the characters that we live with, these characters that we want time and time again. We wanted Blade Runner again. We got Blade Runner again. You know, we 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 live in these characters, whether it's good or whether it's bad. I don't know. It's bad. Um, Yeah. I mean, for the most part, look, Wolverine, I thought was fantastic. People wanted okay. Wolverine, Wolverine, and I think it, like they did an amazing job. Now, do I have high hopes that that Mangold pulls it off again? Yes. I don't know if it's possible, but uh, let's 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 hope for the best. I mean, if he's uh, going to do it, I want him to pull it off. But I also would be fine if he didn't do it. Yeah, I mean, well, look, I, I, I'm saying like we're in a world where yeah. if it's happening, that's who I want to be doing it. If that makes sense. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And I think we're in a world where if people knew that we were still making alien movies, they would be losing their mind because this this alien did not actually get great reviews when it came okay, out. Okay, that was gonna be my question. So what do you yeah? Yeah, like even the reviews that liked Alien mostly called it sluggish. And it okay. became kind of a joke straight away. Like you know that you're a joke when Mad Magazine makes fun of you. Like Mad Magazine wrote that it's a two hour movie with six minutes of dialogue. Um I have a couple like I'll do There's so many negative reviews. I'll try to keep it to a minimum. I'll read some of my favorite lines. It was called an overblown B-movie, technically impressive, but awfully portentous and as difficult to sit through as a black mass sung in Latin. It was called so, quote unquote, effective that it has practically turned me off of movies altogether. The movie is terrifying, but not in a way that is remotely enjoyable. Uh, The Chicago Reader said it was an empty-headed horror movie. With nothing to recommend it besides the disco-inspired art direction and some handsome of gimmicky cinematography, the science fiction trappings add little to the primitive conception, which features a rubber monster running amok in a spaceship. Uh, Ridley Scott relies on suspense techniques that look tired in the perils of Pauline. For the most part, things simply jump out and go, boo. Uh, Under the circumstances, the allusions to Joseph Conrad and Howard Hawks seem unforgivably pretentious. Uh, Instead of characters, the film has bodies. And then, like, even uh, Siskel and Ebert fought about it. Here's them. The alien oozes around the ship like a mucous membrane from outer space, and the movie is one of the scariest old-fashioned space operas I can remember. Well, it did scare me, too. I looked away, and I was yelling with, like, a few other people, it's going to hit them on the floor, it's going to come from the ceiling. It's in the in next row, it's behind me in the yeah. theater. Right. Uh, but I, I want to say that, you know, strip away all the beautiful scenery and the evocative weirdness of the picture... Uh, what we really have here is basically the haunted house film, only instead of a wild creature running around in a haunted house, we got a wild creature running around in a spaceship. And so this is not the greatest science fiction film ever made, even though it seems to be doing very well across the country. So that's fascinating. Like, I, I mean, it makes me think, like, what movie that came out this year are we going to be seeing sequels of for the next 40 years? And God, I hope that doesn't happen. I mean, well... <sighs> I think we're in the middle of one of the biggest ones. I mean, do you think that Marvel's going to go away? I mean, you know, I don't know if it will. I think it will. Okay. I mean, I think nothing lives forever. So, like, yeah. <laughs> All right, it well, has I, to die. You know, I also wonder, too, it's like we talk a lot about the AFI list and the idea that the AFI list uh, definitely elevates work from the 70s that made an impact on many of the directors of our time. I all, I wonder if the work that is being made now is as resonant 
as the work back then because there was so little of it where now it's like there's so much and you're just like, what's next? What's next? What's next? You don't even have a chance to really capture into something that you want that you can feel like, oh, I wish they made another one of these because you're watching so many of these things, right? Um, and in the and we're already doing it. Like, all right, there's a Loki series and there's a Mandalorian and now we're having, you know, a Boba Fett series and we're just like, bam, 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 bam. We're, we're not even letting... It's almost like we're ordering dessert with our dinner now in a, in a way, you know? And, and there's so, like, I don't know if we can get caught up in it because, I, I, you know, like, I guess the question will be, when Keanu Reeves is 70, will he be making a John Wick one last go around, you know, whatever the thing is, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, I think the spore-like proliferation, proliferation, the alien-like reproduction of the Marvel universe is hopefully what will kill it at the end. Because if you, even the greatest Marvel fan will find it impossible to keep up with everything And once they start making calls, like, I guess I don't care about that character that much. I think that chips away at your idea that you are a super fan. And then I think the whole thing will come crashing down. Yeah, just like just just like comic books. The comic books are really falling apart. Exactly. No, I was joking. I haven't, Amy. They've gone on for years and years and years. No one cares. Well, I don't buy them anymore, so I can't Uh, tell. That's terrible. But um, but I do think this, especially like what we're seeing with the overwhelming amount of content is part of what keeps us from creating new iconic films because Mm -hmm. like I'm thinking about this because I also got into this in the Raiders piece. Like if you wanted to see alien, if you were like, what is this thing? You had to go to the theater. It wasn't going to be showing on TV. You didn't know that you were going to be able to rent it later. It was like, if you heard that this movie was good, you had to see it in a theater or else you would never be able to talk about it again. So everybody had to go in the same like four month period to see this Mm -hmm. movie. And that doesn't happen because now, like, as great as you hear a movie is, you're like, oh, I'll remember to rent that and maybe you'll do it in the next, like, three years. Like, God only knows when you'll get around to it. So I think that keeps things from ascending as a giant cultural touchstone. I hear that. I buy that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you feel overwhelmed by things. And, and you know, and what I think we're finding is we so want to connect with things. And I, and we want to have that that love that I think it it's coming out now more as we all shared something. And I, I'm sorry if I'm like a little bit loosey-goosey with what I'm saying, but like like the shit's Creek of it all in the last year, I feel like that's what we're going to have more of is like we all watch this thing. Like, you know, um, you know, like I think we're, we're looking more for now a communal experience where we all can be on the same page rather than all of us uh, wanting more. I think we appreciate a completion. In a way, like I feel like people love Shit's Creek. I don't feel like there's going to be like a call for a uh, continuation of it. I feel like it had a really great ending. Uh, but what do I know? Maybe in 20 years there will be. But you know, no, like but I, you're right. Like, you know, what does art exist for if not for us to have a relationship with it and talk about it and keep it alive? And if we're all watching different things, where is art? Well, I always find that like it's so hard to have water cooler moments. And so I always go back to shows like Lost or Breaking Bad that forced it. Like, you know, right now, if you go and watch uh, and I know it's a little bit of an old reference, but if you watch Queen's Gambit, so old, like four months old. Uh, but if, like, God, it, like so dusty. I like, know. Older than Queen Elizabeth already. But if you've watched Queen's Gambit 
and you're done with it and you tell me to watch it and then it takes me four months to watch Queen's Gambit. We can't ever have a conversation about it because by the time I'm finished watching it, you're like, oh yeah, I'm already past it. Now I'm on to Stranger Things and news, whatever the whatever the thing is. So I, I think we long for these things and these movies, these Indiana Jones, the Aliens, the Blade Runners are these conversations like, oh, what if? It's, like we like to exist in that world where right now, we are, and I think Marvel does do great. I, I'm a I'm a Marvel stan in many ways, and I think we do a great. I think Marvel does a great job of embracing comic book worlds. Like, yeah, maybe Winter Soldier is, uh, you know, and uh, you know, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier aren't your bag, but WandaVision is. So maybe like I like WandaVision more than I like that, but I like Loki more than I like all three. You know, I, I'm not saying that's how I feel. I have my whole opinion about this. I'll talk about it later. But uh, but I cannot but, wait to hear them. I really cannot wait to. hear But them. I think the way that Marvel's kind of doing it is exactly against what you're saying, which is Marvel's going like, all right, yeah, watch this one or don't watch this one. Whatever you watch this, and you, like if you want to be completist, it's all there for you. But if you want to make your entry point WandaVision, great. And if that makes you just go watch Doctor Strange uh, two, great. Like I feel like like I feel like they're they're very much like the comic book mentality of like let's put out a bunch of tentacles and like ride this, and you can kind of create your own adventure. And it allows us to embrace the what ifs of our world that we've always lived in. I mean, Marvel's that's doing fair, that, you know. But I also think that they're doing it because even they know this won't last much longer. Mm-hmm. I think they're like, we can maybe get another five years out of this. We should just make them all now. Like, yeah. this is not going to happen in 10 years. So let's just get it. Like, let's do it. We'll build the, the catalog. So whenever a kid's interested, they're probably thinking in a way beyond time, past and yeah. present. Now they can just like have a kid subscribe to Disney Plus and like watch them whenever. You're, that they yes. will always have this backlog. Absolutely. But Oh, Luke, I, yeah. I, I I like to imagine that it's like the dying gasp spasm of making these shows because they know they can't keep doing it. Yeah. But that's me being a, a horrible, mean person. I'm sorry to everybody who loves those shows. It's not personal. I haven't seen them. It's just no, me from but the it, outside the way, but being you don't like, have to... eh. But you know, yeah, can I? Can, uh, well, we can get into a larger conversation about the state yeah. of films. But all right, I'm so aware I, that I'm out of sync of this. I just like I like taking the hard. You stance aren't though. And being you like, aren't. Death, 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 death. I, I'm I'm all about embracing cool works of art by interesting artists. And if you have to do it, like if Chloe Zhao is going to make The Eternals and she's going to make one of the most compelling Marvel movies, like fucking yeah. Like I love it. I mean, I already am in, but I'm also like give people the toolbox that they can make. And if you actually, I think Kevin Feige does believe in vision. Like I, but I've, the way I've always Definitely spoken about Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. The way I've always spoken about Marvel and not that I know a hundred percent, but my limited interaction with them is they have, they create a bowling alley sensation that they give little kids, which is they're going to put guards up. So you're never going to get a gutter ball, right? And But if you have the ability to knock down all those pins, they're going to say, go for it. We're just protecting you from the gutter ball. Like, and, and that's why like, you can see like Taika or James Gunn or Chloe Zhao, you know, and there's, there's more. I mean, John Favreau, I think, started the whole thing. But like, they could bring something in and you could get like all of a sudden WandaVision too. Like they let these voices come through and like, yeah, if you can work in our confines, hit a strike, like make us look great, but we'll never let you fail. And, and I appreciate that. Like, I feel like there, there's something cool about that. If you are letting an artist make art, but yet they are keeping you within the parameters. Like, yes, you can have, uh, you know, Spider-Man get stabbed through the heart and die, but you can do all these other things. You can't have the alien tear off Ripley's face. Right. But yeah. 
And but, here's and here's a hundred million dollar budget to go make it. And like, you know, and yeah. Not that well, that I budget mean, means everything, but yeah. But it kinda does right now. And like especially the marketing budget, so people know your movie exists. But like right. to now I know we're like on a crazy tangent, but just to kind of round it off, I mean, to the Chloe Zhao of it all, mm-hmm. like, I want that movie to be amazing. And I want that movie to give her the freedom to do whatever she wants. And what I really want is for that movie to let Chloe Zhao create and find the next like alien, the next H.R. Giger, the next look mm-hmm. of where cinema is going. Because somebody has to and they're not doing it. And if she has to do that in order to find it, great. Like, I'm right. on board with that. But look at what Taika did. I mean, like, I think that Taika is a perfect example of somebody who has gone back to gone back to Marvel, but also made Jojo Rabbit. Uh, and I believe he made that soccer film that's coming out. You know, like there are these, you know, and, then, uh, and there are these people that can also just embrace like there there should be more Steven Spielbergs in my mind. Like I want more Steven. I want I want great fun I want to go like, oh, I'm excited to go see this popcorn film. You Me know? too. Wait, whoa, yeah. whoa. I'm not against popcorn film. I'm okay. just against repetitive popcorn film. I, I would that. love a good popcorn. I'm sick of an indie movie about like, what do I want to do with my life? I'm done. I but agree. like, I, I want agree. a good popcorn film. They I agree. just have to, They. I want to see something new. That's all. I'm so, starved for like stimulus. I agree. So let's put our, will we blast it into space, just like the alien at the end of this movie, into a hold pattern right now, because I think we need to see aliens and then talk about them and make okay. our decision based on that. So he's holding into the airlock. We yes, haven't shot a, yes. him out yet with the harpoon. I, I think that that is the way that we should go. And why did they have a harpoon? But that's a question for another day. And why do they smoke on airplanes or in spaceships? I feel like that would be something that would be like really gutted from our society in, uh, in spacecraft. Uh, but anyway, so next week we'll be talking about Solaris, uh, which we'll get into in just a second. And then we will... Uh, we will come back to aliens, but just because of the way that we have to edit the episodes, we will make sure that we get to aliens before the end of the series. Stay tuned for when. Um, Let's do but, it. And we have to figure out for sure right stuff versus Apollo 13. I'm still yeah, so doing keep, it. Still <sighs> keep your uh, your opinions coming in on our Discord and stuff like that. But I wanted to do one quick thing, and I don't know why I didn't bring it up until this point. But if Devin would be so inclined, um, this is a challenge for Devin. There is a music cue at one hour and 31 minutes in the director's cut. Uh, that sounds to me like the Jaws theme. And I thought that maybe Devin, if he was up for the challenge, could put the Jaws theme next to this one hour and 31 uh, minute cue of the alien uh, kind of popping out. And I thought there's a little John Williams in this music Call me crazy. So uh, if Devin is not up for this challenge, we'll just de- delete it there. But uh, you got to hear it. It was really kind of, I was like, oh, this is really cool. All right. So the next week, join us in space again for Solaris. Ooh. Then play us out, Devin.
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.